Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about peace, conflict, and the media. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. The conversation we're going to have today is one that I've been wanting to have for a long time. It gets to the heart of what our project, War Stories, Peace Stories, is all about. How do you talk about the building of peace in a way that people will understand and pay attention? Moreover, how do you motivate the public to act in support of peace? In January, UN Secretary Antonio Guterres gave a speech about the rule of law and international peace and security. I'm going to read a short excerpt, and I'd like you to think about how it makes you feel. We are at grave risk of the rule of lawlessness. In every region of the world, civilians suffer the effects of devastating conflicts, loss of human life, rising poverty and hunger. From the illegal development of nuclear weapons to the illegal use of force, states continue to flout international law with impunity, and so on. These kinds of dire warnings are common when it comes to communicating about peace and conflict. Our guest this episode says messages like this make her want to hide under her bed, and she's a professional peace builder. Elizabeth Hume is the executive director of the Alliance for Peacebuilding, the umbrella organization for what I like to call the peace industry. A few years ago, Liz and her colleagues decided it was time to rethink the way peace builders communicate with the public, so she called up our other guest, Andrew Volmer. Drew is a senior vice president of research for an interesting organization called the Frameworks Institute. Frameworks specializes in helping nonprofit organizations reframe social issues to gain broader public understanding and acceptance. From 2020 to 2022, Drew and his team surveyed thousands of Americans to find out how they think about peace and peacebuilding, and how they'd respond to new ways of framing peace and conflict. They came back with insights that peace builders, as well as journalists covering peace and conflict, can learn from. Liz and Drew, welcome to Making Peace Visible. Liz, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and what it does. So thank you so much for having us here today. So the Alliance for Peacebuilding, I like how you coined it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal that. Um, <laughs> you, you're welcome to steal it. <laughs> okay. So in a wonkier way, we are the leading peacebuilding membership-based organization here in the United States. We have over 180 organizational members, large ones like Mercy Corps and World Vision academic universities, you know, search for common ground, the people that are doing peace building conflict prevention work internationally, and also now in the global north, as we like to say it, the <laughs> United States and other places. Mm -hmm. And we really focus on advancing the field, strengthening the field, because no one organization can address these issues alone. We have to do it collectively. Andrew, Tell us a little bit about the Frameworks Institute. What, what does it do? Thanks, Jamil. It's a pleasure to be with you and, and with you, Liz. So Frameworks is a nonprofit social science-based communications think tank. That's kind of a mouthful. Basically what we do, we <laughs> conduct research to understand how members of the public in the U.S. and sometimes in other countries think about different social issues. 
Uh, we then develop and test frames that have the potential, new frames, new narratives that have the potential to shift thinking about those issues in ways that enable our partners, advocates, activists, organizers, practitioners to build support for progressive change on the issues that they work on. And then we work with, with those folks, with those partners to get those frames and narratives out into the public discourse. That's great. Well, now that we understand who's who, Liz, why did AFP ask for Framework's help to reframe peace building? What was the problem you wanted to solve? What was the goal? That's such a good question. Because we were doing a horrible job. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing a horrible job. We are very technical. We're very wonky. We want to, you know, talk about our programs and the drivers of conflict and and the resiliencies. And, you know, everyone just goes to sleep. We have to do a better job at people understanding why, what peace building is, why it is important and why you need to get involved and what can you do to prevent conflict and build peace in your communities and in faraway places. Mm-hmm. Well, Drew, I'd like to know a little more about the research methods. Sure, sure. So our work on this project was dis- uh, divided into two basic research phases for the work that we do. So it started off with a descriptive phase of work. What we're doing in that research is really trying to understand the existing lay of the land. So that mm-hmm. starts with some interviews that we did with members of the peacebuilding field. So we talked to folks like Liz, lots of other folks in the field who we needed to understand to start, what is it that peacebuilders want to get across? What do they want people to understand if they're communicating to members of the public? What are those key ideas that they are maybe struggling to communicate, but need better ways of getting across. And then we jumped into some interviews with members of the public, what we call cultural models interviews. Those are two hour long, in-depth interviews where we get people talking about, we ask very open-ended questions, how they understand peace, how they understand conflict, what they think leads to peace or conflict, how they think about American foreign policy. We're able to identify the underlying cultural mindsets, the deep assumptions and implicit understandings that people use to think about peace and conflict. We also did an analysis of existing field communications to see the ways in which peace builders are currently framing their issues. Then we pivoted into our prescriptive phase of research, where we're actively developing and testing new ways of framing where we're sharing different kinds of messages with people and seeing how they affect people's attitudes and understandings. And then we concluded with a focus group style method that enables us to understand how frames work in conversation. And so through those, we we landed on a set of framing recommendations. You know, in in your report, you talked about challenges and opportunities. Can can you describe some of the different challenges and opportunities that you uncovered in your research? Sure. So it's important to recognize there are both challenges and opportunities on any issue that we work on. So again, coming back to this idea of cultural mindsets, we're not looking for public opinion. We weren't looking for whether people support a particular policy or what they think about a particular political figure. We're looking for the deep assumptions that people use to think about peace and conflict. And we found that some of those assumptions are challenging. For instance, the idea that peace is passive. There's this widespread assumption that peace is something that just happens when you remove conflict. 
that creates challenges for peace builders, obviously, because it leads to the idea that if you just resolve conflicts when they happen, and then you can leave it alone, peace will just result, right? So it gets, gets people away from the idea that peace is something that actively needs to be built. Now, the, the positive side of that is there is an existing, it's a recessive, it's a less frequently drawn upon mindset, but an existing way of thinking of peace as something that's active, that requires ongoing work and maintenance. That is something that exists in public thinking. There are other challenges and opportunities as well. One is there is a tendency to think of conflict and violence as just a part of human nature, just something that's natural and inevitable. When people think in those ways, it becomes very hard for them. They become very fatalistic and tend to think there's, at the end of the day, not that much we can really do to build peace across the world. Right. I mean, it, so, it provokes yeah. a kind of helplessness almost. You know. That's right. That's right. And we see this on a, a lot of issues is different ways of thinking that lead to this sense of fatalism. There are others as well. I, I, a big one in, in the U.S. when we're talking about the American public, assumptions about what leads to peace and security, the tendency to focus on the military as kind of the source of protection and security, and that in fact, we have to have the strongest military in the world. For obvious reasons, that's just a fundamental challenge, a, a, a big problem in promoting understanding of peace building. But on the flip side, there are existing, there is kind of a recognition that diplomacy, for instance, is something that can be quite important and is perhaps a better path toward security and toward peace than a, a strong military. That's another way of thinking that's out there, that's available to people across groups that can be built upon and leveraged. So again, those are some of the examples of the kinds of things that we found in our research. Liz, as you know very well from your experience, peace building or conflict resolution is not something that most Americans are directly involved in. It's seen as something that happens over there. It's the business of diplomats and NGO professionals. So why do you think, why does it matter that pu about public opinion, about peace building? What, what, what's important about getting the public to understand the practice better? A great question. And this is what's really important. One, understanding what peace building is and conflict prevention and the vital work that is being done overseas, what the U.S. government is funding, how they're working with other donors like the Germans or the Canadians or private foundations, what the work that is actually getting done and how do you do it? And how is that interconnected back to them here? Um, and because, you know, we don't have to go any further than COVID and, you know, the conflict, the violence that's happening down in Central America, whether it's a pandemic or uh, massive migration, all of those issues impact you here at home. So that's important to understand that interconnectedness and to understand that people have to support it. Uh, you know, we, we always say we don't have a constituency for peace building, you know, to fund it, you know, and people think that we spend, you know, if you ask them, oh, 20% of our budget goes to foreign assistance. Well, no, it's less than 1%, I think, is the, it's, it's, it's teeny. And then when you go into the conflict prevention budget, it's even tinier than that. So it's, it really, you know, and I always say this, if you can't, if you don't have the resources, you can't do it. So we kind of, you know, we tie our hands behind our back by not 
resourcing these programs. I think that's one really important piece. And then right here at home, because we have conflict, instability, hyperpolarization, political violence right here at home. And so we have to get our policymakers and lawmakers to support it. President Biden talked about it in his State of the Union address. He said, we can't have political violence. But then they didn't put out a plan for what they were going to do about it. So people have to demand it. And then also, just as importantly, they have to understand that you can do this every day in your community. You can build peace, but you have to understand it and know what to do. Exactly. No, I mean, it, it, it really does come down to each of us. I once heard at a comparison, we spend more on Halloween candy than we do on peace building. I'm going to steal that because as Drew <laughs> will tell you, one of the things we always do is say, okay, if we just had the money that we paid for a submarine, and if you just gave us a little bit of the, you know, and we're not supposed to talk about that because that's part, mm-hmm. that's one of the findings, Drew. I don't know if you want to go into that. Yeah, it's, it's a great point, Liz. And, and I think it really is important. So there are a couple of downsides to that approach, you know, comparing military spending. The downside of that is it does a couple of things. One is that it cues precisely those assumptions about the military that you're trying to get away from. So as soon as you start talking about taking away from the military, it throws up people's sense of, wait a minute, but the military is the source of protection. It's the source of security. It's the source of peace. Why would we take money away from the military? The other thing is anytime you're talking about budgets and federal spending, it tends to throw people into their partisan corners. We all know that polarization is a big issue in the U.S. right now. And so as soon as you put the conversation on that terrain, people are likely to react in their usual knee-jerk partisan ways. But are you really having people inspect their fundamental assumptions about what leads to peace? You're just having people react as partisans and get more entrenched. Right. Right. No, I mean, that is a a big problem. Are there reasons to be hopeful from the research that you did? Do you think there's enough of a desire for peace to overcome some of these obstacles in terms of deficits, in terms of understanding? So I think there's absolutely hope. It's really important to recognize that there are existing ways of thinking that are available to people that are a, a useful starting point. Again, some recognition that that peace is something that is active or can be built, something that's a, an idea that we can build upon and leverage. The existing recognition that maybe diplomacy is a better option than the military, an understanding sometimes that inequality is something that, that can lead to conflict, as well as an existing recognition that we are in fact interdependent. That We, we saw this in the research that we conducted This started before the pandemic. We did some interviews back in February of 2020 with members of the public to, to identify these deep cultural mindsets. And one of the things that people did recognize is that what affects people in one part of the world affects people in others. And so the hope comes from then the the prescriptive research that we've done, which says, okay, what can we actually do to pull forward those existing ways of thinking that are productive and to fill in the blanks where where there are blanks? So that, that starts with a narrative that is really about connection. There are other recommendations that found a bridge building metaphor. It is incredibly important work in helping people understand what, what peace building is all about, how it works. Can I just jump in here for a quick? Absolutely. So one of the things we found, for me, one of the most important things that came out of this, and we've had to reframe our materials, the way we talk about it, is 
we go to crisis messaging right away. Hit a 30-year high in global violent conflict. And that was even before the war in Ukraine and before COVID and this, you know, and everybody's brain shuts down because you're overwhelmed and you think, well, what can I do? This is awful. I, and you know, I, I do that with climate change. I want to crawl under, you know, my bed when I hear these stats. So that's really one of the things I learn from you. It doesn't mean that we can't talk about it later on. Like, look, we're not going to pretend this isn't happening, but let me tell you what ha- what has happened, what has gotten better, where have we had successes. Okay, we know these are problems, and then these are the things that you can do. The Alliance for Peace Building puts out a call for action where we are focusing in on what can you do? Our peace building and conflict prevention programming, and that, that might sound silly to talk about conflict prevention in the middle of an all-out conflict, but it's not. Because at some point, we're going to get to an after the fact. And you know, right now with atrocities, we need to be making sure that there's funding there to capture and build the evidence base so that afterwards we're in a when we're you know in a reconciliation or a peace agreement that people are held accountable for what they did that's how you move a society forward i'll, I'll give you another perfect example um, we have an incredible organization and they are bringing kids from israel and cyprus over and they're looking for host families for them to live there in their homes for a couple of weeks during the summer. Not only are you helping to build peace in Cyprus, in Israel, Palestine, but you're also going to learn a lot about peace building here. Right. Well, it's great that AFP and partners and frameworks got together and developed, you know, a workable strategy. It's crucial to have an effective communication strategy to promote understanding of peace and how to build it. But how do you operationalize it? How do you translate that strategy into mainstream communication? Oh my gosh, that is the $24 million question. Okay, how do we operationalize this? It is hard. I cannot tell you the amount of pushback we have. Yeah, we need to tell people the world is in crisis. And we're like, just do it differently. Let's try and let's do it differently. So we have, we've done some activations with Drew at our last PeaceCon, our big conference that we are holding again, May 3rd to 5th. So please join mm-hmm. us. Um, you can, of course, yeah, we but you can go on our website and register and come. That's another way. Get involved with the peace building field, just like you might get involved with the climate field. But how do we create a peace force? people that understand how to talk about these issues and how to reframe them. And it starts at home, meaning in our own organizations. And it's not easy. You know, our project, War Stories, Peace Stories, is focused on a particular intersection of journalism and peace building, because we're interested in helping journalists understand the practice better so that they can write about it more effectively. Liz, what do you think journalists are missing when they report on peace and conflict? 
We just recently interviewed David Bornstein of Solutions Journalism Network, and he talked about some of the research that's been done that points out that people feel more efficacy when they hear that there are maybe not perfect solutions, but there are people working on finding solutions to problems. And that's the brain science. We know that. That, you know, we work with neuroscientists and they tell us this. And that's one of, you know, we know that when you start off with the crisis messaging, people's brains shut down. If you don't give them solutions, they're like, well, what do you want me to do about it? Another really important thing I learned from Drew and Frameworks is stop highlighting this amazing person. Well, don't stop highlighting that, but understand when we see, you know, somebody amazing that has done something amazing, what our brain triggers is, well, you know, that person is exceptional. I can't do that. And so we have to be focusing in on the actions and, and again, circle back into you have agency and not get so hung up on this incredible hero. Did I say that right, Drew? Yeah, I was I was just going to jump in. I think this is such an important point and it's so I couldn't agree more about the importance of elevating solutions and I think solutions journalism is fantastic on this point and it is very much the 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 contrast to crisis messaging which is all about the problem. So elevating solutions absolutely, but how we do that is actually really really important. And I think some of what we need more of in the news is examples of peace building work that really connect the dots for people um, between like what actually is happening and focusing on programs. And this comes back to the point that Liz was just making is I think essential. There is a real tendency in journalism, we all know, to focus on individuals, heroic people who are you know doing good work, making a difference. And while those stories often are gripping, partly because they fit into a lot of very familiar patterns about individual heroes you know, taking things on, the danger is precisely what Liz was, was just saying, which is that that reinforces a sense that it's not, the, it's not the peace building work, it's not the program that is a model of what we should be doing more. It's actually, we've just happened to have this remarkable individual who I, who, you know, I as an individual, I couldn't do that. And we collectively, there are only so many people like that. So it, it's not something that you can scale up. It's not something you can replicate. So figuring out ways of talking about collective work, about programs that exist that have people in them, of course, as key characters, you know, individuals doing great work, but doing great work together, doing it collectively is essential to really building an idea that peace building is something that that we can all be part of and mm-hmm. that can really can be scaled up as a solution. Right. You mentioned earlier you, about the pandemic. You know, the pandemic is something that in an ideal world should have highlighted our inter- interdependence and in a sense lead to more constructive behavior. It didn't. It heightened divisions. There's been an increase in violence in some places. Do either of you have a sense of how COVID-19 has shaped Americans' attitudes towards international peace and conflict? Well, I think it's, and I don't want to say anything good came out of COVID. Let me be very clear. That's not what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. But if, if anything came out of it, it showed us exactly what Drew was talking about, our interconnectedness with the world. What happens over there impacts us here. And so I think that's number one. It also 
you know, the health sector, I always say there's a couple sectors that are hard nuts to crack. They don't want to deal with conflicts. They don't want to deal with peace building. They want to stay neutral. So if anything, this helped us with the humanitarian sector and the health sector, because they would come to us and say, we don't understand. Why won't people just take our vaccines? We're scientists. We're here to help. And we're like, you don't have to look any further than the United States. Our social cohesion, our trust scores, according to the Fund for Peace, Fragile State Index, have been declining for 14 straight years. So countries that have high social cohesion scores did better, especially, I mean, before the vaccine came out, they did better in working together. The United States did so poorly. If we didn't get a vaccine, I shudder to think of what would have happened in terms of deaths here in the U.S. The conflict dynamics here in the United States prevented According to every health index, if a global pandemic came through the United States, we should have knocked it out of the park. And we didn't. In fact, we failed miserably. And the health folks are now coming to us and saying, oh my, we have to make sure that conflict prevention and peace building are part of our programs because people aren't just going to take the vaccine and listen to us. And more importantly, we know that health issues, humanitarian issues exacerbate, fuel conflict. And so we, that's why peace building and conflict prevention have to be part of these programs. Drew, I wanted to ask you, I know that you're currently investigating how American mindsets are shifting in the wake of so much upheaval. Yeah. Um, and you're not necessarily looking at peace building specifically, but is there anything you've gleaned from that research that could help us grasp how attitudes towards this kind of work can be changing? It's, it's a great question. We, we have this project at Frameworks called the, the Culture Change Project that we started back in May of 2020. And when the pandemic hit, we went into the field to do some research with members of the American public to understand how cultural mindsets across issues, including the economy, health, race and racism, government and democracy, how fundamental cultural mindsets were going to shift in response to the social upheavals of the pandemic. And then, you know, the, the disruptions to the economy, the racial justice uprisings of 2020, January 6th. We've been exploring how thinking is responding to these different upheavals. But I, I, I want to I flag something that goes back to something that Liz mentioned about social cohesion, which is that when we do focus group conversations and ask people we start off with some very general questions about what it means for the country to do well, um, when we've done well in the past, what it would mean for us to do well as a country going forward. The common refrain that we hear again and again is a lot of concern about unity, the, the desire for unity and the reality of social division. The, the reality of social um, distrust, the lack of cohesion is something that people are it very attuned to and very concerned about. The challenge, of course, is that what it takes to achieve unity, people have some different ways of understanding what that looks like. This idea that we there are some fundamental steps that we need to be taking, even if people aren't sure what those are, to address that lack of unity, to establish more social cohesion, that is very much a, a shared concern across groups, across political parties, across demographic groups. It's something that everyone agrees with. 
I'm wondering if there are any things that I haven't asked that you think are important to talk about from either from your research or from Liz's point of view in terms of moving public attitudes in favor of supporting the practice of peace building. And that's the other thing that I was just going to mention is that it's important to recognize that when we're looking to shift thinking in, in fundamental ways about how people think about issues like peace and conflict, it's not a short-term endeavor. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's something that takes a lot of work, takes and a, takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And, and the key thing is really all getting on the same page in our communications about peace and conflict and peace building, because it's only when people hear a common refrain, a new way of talking about an issue that it starts to become available to them as a, a new way of thinking about that issue, that it starts to affect public thinking. You know, I worked for 35 years in developing countries promoting reform of all kinds. And one of the things that I always told my colleagues and clients was that these new ideas have to come from everywhere. They have to come from a wide variety of sources because it's just that range of sources, people saying the same things, that give credibility to these new ideas. Couldn't agree more. Liz, do you have any uh, thoughts about where things are going? And do you think we'll get to a, a meaningful change in the public perceptions about the practice of peace building? A lot of our tools and strategies are from the Cold War or they're, hold, you know, they're holdovers from the Cold War or from you know, the 1990s and humanitarian assistance. We have new means through the social media, you know, what's fueling our conflict. We have to get better at understanding what's driving it, what we can do about it. We have to resource it. We have to fund it. We don't have a choice. Because the, the alternative is really unthinkable. Join us. Go to the Alliance for Peacebuilding webpage and get involved. Yes, absolutely. It's a great organization doing great work. I can't thank you both enough for sharing your ideas and your insights and your research with us today. This is a very important conversation and very glad that we've had it today. Thank you. And thank you for everything that you do. Thanks, Jamil. You can download the Frameworks Institute's reports on reframing peacebuilding for free. Head to frameworksinstitute.org and search for peace. Or you'll find direct links in our show notes. Learn more about the Alliance for Peacebuilding at allianceforpeacebuilding.org. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrea Moraskin. Faith McClure is the associate producer. I'm Jamil Simon. Peter Agus is the creative director of War Stories, Peace Stories. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, we'd be honored if you'd leave us a rating or review. It won't just make us feel good. Ratings and reviews help other people find the show. If you're listening on Spotify, you can give us a rating there too. Thanks so much for joining us and talk again soon.